Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Leshem. Dr. Leshem received a BA in History from Columbia University, as well as a BA in Talmud from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Dr. Leshem holds an MA in Jewish History and Philosophy from Toro College and a PhD from Bar-Ilan University with a thesis entitled Between Messianism and Prophecy, Hasidism According to the Piazesna Rebbe. Rabbi Leshem received his smicha rabbinic ordination from the chief rabbinate of Israel. Rabbi Leshem's scholarly publications focus on the Piazesna Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman of Reslov, Hasidic education, the philosophy of Rav Shager, and Gershom Shalom. Dr. Leshem is the director of the Gershom Shalom Collection for Research in Kabbalah and Hasidism at the National Library of Israel in Jerusalem, and is the author of Redemptions, Contemporary Hasidic Essays on the Parsha and the Festivals. And today we will be discussing Gershom Shalom and the Gershom Shalom Collection for Research in Kabbalah and Hasidism. Rabbi Dr. Leshem, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay. Just a little bit of, of background um, on the early life of Gershom Shalom and when and why did he, if this is the right word, break away from his assimilated Jewish Berlin family? Okay, so Shalom was born in 1897 in Berlin to a, uh, I'm going to say a half-assimilated family, and I'll uh, prove that because his mother lit Shabbos candles every week, and his father lit a cigar from the Shabbos candles every week. So that's, I call, half-assimilated. He was the youngest of four brothers. The older two brothers kind of followed in the family tradition and were fairly secular and business people and and pretty straight, uh, straight kind of people. The two younger brothers were big rebels. Shalom's, uh, the third brother was Werner Shalom, who actually became the leader of the German Communist Party and was killed uh, by the Nazis in the Holocaust. And the youngest brother, uh, Gershom, or Gerhard, as he was known in German, he rebelled by becoming interested in Judaism and Zionism. And eventually within Judaism, particularly in Kabbalah, which was completely uh, avant-garde, let's say, in the Berlin uh, milieu, even amongst the Orthodox Jews there, uh, which he did not come from, although he flirted briefly with uh, Orthodoxy and was a member of the Agudat Yisrael youth movement for about a year, but he was really much more active in the Zionist uh, youth movements. And so he, he's a young man, and he becomes interested in Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. How does that happen? Well, that's actually also an interesting story. He, first of all, as a, as a super smart young man and an extremely hardworking young man, when he got interested in Judaism and he, and he felt much like Kafka in a way, we looked up to very much that his father had kind of cheated him out of his Jewish heritage, so to speak. So he got himself tutors in to teach him Hebrew, to teach him Bible, to teach him Talmud. And he spent, which were mostly Orthodox rabbis in Berlin. And um, and how he got to Kabbalah is a very roundabout uh, way. He read the history of the Jews by Heinrich Gretz, who was a really great Jewish historian, German Jewish historian. And Gretz was absolutely opposed to Kabbalah. Gretz was viciously uh, uh, opposed to Kabbalah and Hasidism. He made fun of it as charlatanism and superstition and, and all these sort of things. It was 
He was not an objective historian when it came to those topics. And Shalom, reading Gretz, had a reverse, kind of inverse reaction. He said to himself, if this is what this guy is attacking so much, there must be something interesting here that I should check out. And he really went to the other extreme and came to the conclusion that Kabbalah and mysticism um, was really, the, in a sense, the central living pulse of Judaism throughout the ages, more so than rabbinic Judaism or halakha. And he basically set out to basically take the tools of Wissenschaftus uh, Judentums, the sort of the scientific study of Judaism that Gretz and others were associated with, and use it to study the Kabbalah, which the earlier scholars had mostly ignored or made fun of. So, um, Gershom Shalom, uh, obviously there, there's the Gershom Shalom collection. When did he start amassing um, collection of, of Jewish mystical Hasidic or Kabbalic books? How was that whole process of getting this whole amazing collection together? Well, it really was a lifelong pro- process. But the amazing thing about Shalom is that once he kind of decided what he wanted to do, he set out to do it with incredible rigor and and uh, and systematic work. And that includes building his library. As soon as he decided that he wanted to go into a career in Jewish studies, which was after he, he left mathematics, which is, was his original field, he uh, decided that he's going to devote his life to studying the Kabbalah. And he decided that in order to do that, you had to build the complete Kabbalah library, more or less or the Jewish mystical library based on the definitions that he gave gave to that, being the first academician to really devote himself fully to the topic. And he went around, he went from bookstore to bookstore in Berlin, uh, buying books. He writes in his autobiography from Berlin to Jerusalem that he would sometimes skip meals to buy books, or he would eat uh, really cheap uh, uh, food in lousy restaurants to save money for buying books. And he, um, and it was also was the time in post-World War I uh, with all the hyperinflation in Germany, so you could buy books very relatively cheaply. And he, but he was very systematic about it. He started uh, collecting book dealer catalogs and marking down very, very uh, carefully what books he had, what books he didn't have, what books he should get. And he, he kept very careful uh, records of all these things, where he bought books, how much he paid for them, uh, etc. When he made Aliyah in 1923, as a 26-year-old, he already brought with him over 1,700 books including uh, over 600 in Kabbalah and Hasidut, and with, of course, with a, as a good yaki, as a good detailed German Jew with a, a special notebook listing every book by topic and where he bought it, how much he paid for it, you know, which edition it was, etc. And um, he also, by the way, I should mention, even before, before he made Aliyah as a very young man, he already decided that after he would die, that his collection should become part of the National Library in Israel and become the basis of a uh, center for the study of Kabbalah, which is what happened. So he really uh, saw, really looked ahead at these things. Once he made Aliyah, he started hitting all the bookstores in Mea Sharim, which was near his home. And he also corresponded with people in Europe to send him books, both with book dealers and with, um, he had his mother buying books for him. There's one correspondence where she writes to him, I have nightmares of you drowning in a sea of Kabbalistic manuscripts. And he responds to her, okay, mom, but where's the book on alchemy that you were supposed to send me? 
So he really spent his entire life um, collecting books, cataloging them for himself, arranging them. And that was how he felt that he could do his proper historical philological work to be able to open up all the editions of a, of a book and compare them, etc. Now, in addition to that, you need manuscripts. And he, he could never afford manuscripts, of course, for himself, but he did two things. He convinced um, Magnus, who was the first president of the Hebrew University, to devote a significant amount of, uh, of the university's budget to purchasing Hebrew manuscripts. And he also, Sholem and him, himself and his students, when they were traveling, would go to various libraries and make photocopies of, of the Jewish manuscripts that they found there. And there's a, a very big uh, part of the collection that we have now are hundreds of photocopies of Kabbalistic manuscripts that were made by Sholem and his students. This was really a lifelong uh, devotion and done with tremendous uh, care and precision. And the results are... Uh, are really astounding. So when he died in in uh, 1982, we received uh, over approximately 25,000 books from his library, including thousands of rare books. And now, of course, the collection has grown quite a bit because it's a living uh, research center. But uh, the core remains the books uh, that were in Shalom's small apartment in uh, in Yerushalayim. Obviously, an extremely organized uh, person, um, to say the least. Um, what is shitat shalom? What 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 does that mean? Is, is, okay. is there a special well, methodology behind all of this? Um, it's actually the, the phrase shitat shalom, uh, which is a kind of a euphemism, or it's not certainly not in any official title, refers to something else that's related, but uh, not what we've spoken about so far. Shalom's first position when he made aliyah was as director of the Judaica section in the National Library. Uh, as they called it then, the Beit HaSfarim uh, HaLuumi, the uh, the National uh, Bookhouse. It was even before, in 1923, when he came in Aliyah, it was before the university was established in 25, and then it became the National and University Library as well. So Shalom was the first librarian for for the Jewish books, and and the library was arranged according to the Dewey system, the Dewey Decimal System. Now, Dewey was a very uh, pious Christian. And you probably say, well, what does that have to do with anything here? Well, it actually has a lot to do with it because the Dewey Decimal System is based on dividing all of human knowledge into 10 categories and then subdividing it. So category number two is religion. Right? Two at two point whatever is something having to do with religion. And uh, Dewey gave uh, nine of the subcategories of religion to aspects of Christianity. And only 2.9 was left for all other religions. It's 2.96 is Judaism, 2.97 is Islam, etc. Now, that works if you don't have a lot of books, but if you have a huge library, and that by the time Shalom came in, the library was, was uh, several hundred thousand volumes, you don't have enough numbers, literally, to give the, a shelf number to all the books. So Shalom completely revamped the Dewey Decimal System as it applies to Jewish books, and published the first edition of this in 1927. Uh, had three more editions later on. And this became colloquially known as Shitat Sholem, the Sholem method for the classification of, of Jewish books. Chabad well, um, Lubavitch is well known for putting a lot uh, in writing. You know, writing, writing, writing. And of course, today, 
wherever you go in Israel, perhaps elsewhere, you can always make sure you're going to get at a street corner a Breslov pamphlet on some topic or another from Rav Nachman. Um, why did Gershom Sholom particularly um, spend time and why was he interested in both Chabad and Nachman of Breslov writings? Well, well that's an interesting question because it touches on Sholom's whole approach to the study of Hasidism. Sholom's published works on Hasidism at this point all fit into one volume. There's quite a bit of unpublished material in his archives, which are also in the National Library, in which some of it is people are working on publishing it, but it certainly was not his main focus. His much bigger focus was earlier, either ancient, medieval, and uh, and early modern Kabbalah before Hasidism, although he did write about Hasidism, and he collected an enormous amount of Hasidic books, including huge collections of Chabad and Breslov, uh, neither of which he wrote about very much. Uh, why is that? So according to uh, Yosef Dan, who was uh, one of Shalom's early students, Shalom um, just simply didn't get around to writing about all the things in his library. He has many areas of his library where you see he collected a huge amount of books and didn't write very much about them. We could add to, to the two you mentioned, also the Ramchal, or Moshechem Lutzato, and the Maharal of Prague, of which Shalom has huge amounts of their books and books about them, but wrote very little about them. Uh, Chabad and Breslov, however, he has really huge collections of. And that's interesting because Breslov, for example, uh, in the early part of our century was still a tiny Hasidic sect or Hasidic uh, group that had very few followers and actually very few writings. Shalom uh, in the, uh, in the, I forget, I believe in the 20s or the 30s, I have to check, wrote a pamphlet in honor of Mar- Martin Buber's uh, 50th birthday. Um, entitled Ela Shemot. These are the names, which was a bibliography of Breslov works, and he only found 150 bo- books published by or written about Breslov, um, which now there are thousands and thousands. Um, however, he was very interested in Rabbi Nachman because, I think, because of Rabbi Nachman's creativity as a writer and because of his sort of unique personality, his d- dynamic personality, all that kind of attracted Shalom's attention. When it comes to Chabad, the story is a little bit different. Chabad writing, which is infinitely more um, systematic than Breslov writing, is also highly Kabbalistic in an overt way. When Shalom mentions in, in a couple of places that really, other than Chabad, Hasidism isn't, is really taking Kabbalah and applying it more as a way of life. It's not so much uh, systematic uh, Kabbalah, although there are other exceptions as well, such as Komarno. But uh, he writes about Chabad, especially about Rabbi Shneer Zalman, the Altar Rebbe, and the Tanya, and his other writings, that here you see someone who's taking uh, Kabbalah, especially the Kabbalah of the Ari, of Rabbi Luria, and revamping it so that it is more applicable to human life, so to speak. He, he talks about it as kind of a psychologization of the Kabbalah, taking Kabbalistic principles, which talk about, in a sense, about the Godhead and applying them to human psychology, spirituality, and, and devotion. So Chabad interested him, I think, because it was more overtly Kabbalistic than most Hasidim, and Breslau, I think, more because of the personality and the kind of the interesting writings of Rabbi Nachman and his followers, I mean, Natan especially, uh, caught his attention, but he really wrote very little on either, other than the bibliographic work that he that he did on on Breslov. Okay, so let's let's go to Kabbalah, I guess. 
Um, so th there's something that's called the bibliographia kabbalistica. Um, what exactly is that? Is that a work of Gershom Shalom? Is that something that's a work of Gershom Shalom. That's a work in German in 1927. Um, even though Shalom was already in Israel, he was still doing some publishing in Germany, including this work. And it's basically a bibliographic work of um, books of Kabbalah and books about Kabbalah. So he basically goes in and lists every work that he was aware of and gives sort of bibliographical notations about it. Um, one of the things that Cholm did as a, as an, in the early stages of his scholarship was he really did a tremendous amount of bibliographic work. What he was doing in the early stages um, was really mapping out all the Kabbalah literature because it was so much Kabbalistic literature and a lot of it's still in manuscript, which I'll mention in a, a, a moment and a bit more about that. There was so much material and no one had really sat down and organized it. For example, what was written first? What was written second? What was copied from what? Who was influenced by whom? Where were things written? Especially when you get to manuscripts, that gets much more complicated, obviously. So I'd like to mention in this context that in 1930, Sholom wrote a separate book uh, describing all the Kabbalistic manuscripts at the Hebrew University National Library. It was even in the few years since he uh, since he kind of got on the case of Magnus to start buying manuscripts, there were enough manuscripts for him to publish a whole volume on that topic. So both the Biblica, Bibliographia Kabbalistica, which deals primarily with published works, and his uh, book on the Kabbalistic manuscripts, which came a few years later, are part of his very big initial project, which is really to, to give a bibliographical uh, detailed description and mapping out of all the Kabbalistic literature, which he felt was necessary before you could really start going into depth analyzing the content. And, and what did Gershon write subsequently about the content? What books did he publish? And what was his approach to Kabbalah? Okay, so he viewed himself as a historian of Kabbalah, and as with his primary tool being philology, the analysis of rigorous analysis of texts or close reading of, of texts, and the historical part having a lot to do with analyzing in what ways, sort of intellectual history, who influenced who, and as who took ideas from an earlier Kabbalistic work and how did they change them and develop them themselves, and what happened to that in the next stage as well. The place where you see this the most and I'm still not quite in the content, but his really most famous work is The Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, which came out in 1941 based on a series of lectures he'd given in New York and subsequently translated into several other languages, Hebrew only recently, surprisingly. And in that book, you really see his historical approach. He's really, in a sense, uh, a modernist. He has a meta-narrative. It's kind of a Hegelian uh, grand scheme of how things develop. So he talks about the earliest Jewish mysticism in the time of Chazal, the Mer what he calls the Merkava mysticism or the Hechalot mysticism. And then you get into the earliest Kabbalah being developed in Provence, uh, which he doesn't talk about very much in that book. He wrote a separate book on that topic. And then, of course, you come to the Zohar and other medieval Kabbalah, such as Rabbi Avram Abu Lafia. And after that, you come to the early modern period in Safed, the Ramak, Rav Moshe Cordovero, the Ari, and then he brings in Sabatianism, which is a whole other big topic in his writings, Jewish Messianism, and then you come to the Hasidic movement. So that's how he sort of develops it. In the Major Trends book, when it comes to the Zohar, he has two chapters. One chapter is about the authorship of the Zohar, 
which was a long-standing uh, kind of debate between the Orthodox community who attributed the Zohar Trebishun Bar Yochai from the second century uh, and the scholarly community which by and large attributed the Zohar to Rabbi Moshe de Leon, who was a great Spanish Kabbalist in the end of the 13th century. Sholem went back and forth a little bit and before he finally adopted the Moshe de Leon uh, authorship theory. So that was one chapter. The second chapter is about the the theories of the Zohar. What is the, what is the Kabbalah of the Zohar? How is it described? And there he goes into detail of the philosophy of the Zohar, so to speak. Um, so a lot of what he wrote was, as I said, of a, of a bibliographical nature and of a, and theorizing about the development. So the one a major book that he wrote later was some people called it the missing chapter for major trends, which became an entire book called The Origins of the Kabbalah, where he traces uh, Kabbalah's development in the early Middle Ages in Provence, prim primarily, and there from spreading from there into various parts of Spain, Castilia and Catalonia. And uh, and so he's really a very, very much uh, of a historian, but he does have places as well where he goes more uh, more into content. The difference between him and the generation that came after him, and this is a big topic in and of itself, but just to mention one aspect is that he didn't deal very much with, with mystical practices. He was much more interested in mystical theory. And the generation of scholars that were his students or uh, and my teachers are much more interested as well in mystical practices. That was something that Shalom was less less taken by. He sort of viewed Kabbalah almost like a type of full, of mystical philosophy uh, and looked at it less as in terms of the way uh, way of life that went along with it, although he, he obviously was aware of that and doesn't ignore it, but it's not his main main way of looking at things. You had mentioned, obviously, before we talked about the amassing of the of the collection um, post-World War II, post-Shoah, post-Holocaust, you have Gershom Shalom and I, probably a team that are trying to discover and save manuscripts. What happened there? What did they discover? Well, that's a huge story in of itself that much has been written about. Uh, as we know, the Nazis, uh, in addition to all of their other horrific crimes, were also... Uh, super major plunderers of uh of of anything of value uh but that certainly as we know for example uh, art artworks okay that's that's a very famous topic now but they also um stole uh millions of books uh for several reasons and then this is after the initial stage of burning books which i think they decided was counterproductive for for several reasons they switched over to stealing books for two main reasons. One was financial. There were you know, a lot of rare books that were worth a lot of money and they were stealing anything of value. The second reason is that uh, they wanted to do research on the Jews. They wanted to be able after the after the war, after they thought they would, you know, God forbid, have killed all the Jews. They wanted to make a big museum in memory of the Jews and they wanted to establish an institute for the study of the Jewish question. And, and they felt that they needed all these books for to study, you know, to study Judaism. So they basically systematically plundered Jewish libraries, whether it be of yeshivot, of uh, libraries that were held in Jewish rabbinical seminaries, in, in regular universities and regular libraries, as well as in private collections. And they brought them to various places, uh, mostly in Germany. 
And uh, after the war, uh, it was known that there was this tremendous amount of material that had been plundered and the and various uh, teams, various places in the Jewish world decided these books had to be saved. Now being saved, initially, one of the theories of being saved meant sending them back to the original owners. Now that turned out to be basically a non-starter because most of the original owners were dead or the institutions that they come from no longer existed or the uh, Jewish communities that they had come from no longer existed. In addition to that, the idea of sending a lot of them back to communist countries where the Jew Jewish life was already being restricted was also seen as uh, as very problematic. So basically in several places, in Israel, in the States, and in England, teams, uh, organizations were set up to uh, to try to save Jewish books. In America, it was Rajuan by Salo Baron, a Jewish historian from Colombia, together with uh, Lucy Davidovich, who was a historian of the Holocaust. In England, I believe it's the historian Cecil Roth was involved in it. And in Israel, the Hebrew University set up a committee headed by Gershom Shalom and sent him with one other researcher in 1946 for a, a year-long trip to go to various uh, libraries and depots where the books were held to try to both classify and catalog them and also to see what could be saved and what, what could be returned to its owners, what could be brought to Israel. Um, and he ended up spending a lot of that time in a big American army depot in Offenbach, Germany, where the Allies had brought, I think, over a million books from all over uh, Germany to be uh, to be dealt with. And Shalom worked there for a long time. And he also, um, and he classified a lot of books and manuscripts, and he decided what was valuable. And with the help of a, an American army chaplain, Jewish army chaplain, he actually smuggled out a large amount of books um, from that. And that's a whole story and stuff. And I said, this is a lot's been written about this topic, and it is obviously somewhat controversial. And a lot of these books made their way to Israel. Um, the ones that are in the National Library are called Otsrot Hagola, the treasures of the of the exile. And uh, one of my colleagues, Daniel Lipson, has uh, written a lot and taught a lot recently about this topic. He's been researching and cataloging all these books. Uh, in, in uh, but that's a really a different topic. But Shalom, so Shalom spent a, the better part of a year in uh, Europe, basically saving Jewish books. Some of which, in the end, there was basically a deal cut. And most of them came to Israel, some went to the States, some went to England, and some did go back to various Jewish communities and institutions in other parts of Europe, in Eastern Europe primarily. Um, and I should just point out that when Shalom came back from this year, he basically had a nervous, somewhat, I don't know if I would say a nervous breakdown might be too hard, but he was very depressed. And for close to a year, he didn't do very much work. And he was facing the, you know, his his brother, Werner, who he was very close with, had been murdered in Buchenwald, and Shalom was in Berlin and saw the, the, the city that he grew up in, that he, he loved very much, had been utterly destroyed. And then he was in contact with so many destroyed Jewish communities, and he met survivors that were just, you know, it was very, the whole thing from was really overwhelming. And he really, uh, it took him a, quite a while till he sort of pulled himself back together after having done that, uh, done that mission. Keshem Shalom, uh, 26 years old, comes to to Israel. Um, we're in the pre-state years. Um, 
in addition to his academic endeavors, was he politically active? Was he well known in the yeshuv and and um, his friends, uh, you know, people like Agnon or Martin Buber, were these his colleagues and and mm -hmm. companions? Well, that that's, touches on a lot of different topics. Okay. Um, keep him when I'll, I'll start with the easy one. When Shalom came to Jerusalem, it was a very small town. And so I think pretty pretty quickly he did get to be well known uh, as a kind of an oddity, a German raised, not particularly Orthodox Jew who spent all his time studying Kabbalah, which was a rare a rarity. Uh, and in light of that, he did once arrange for himself to meet with Rav Cook, who was then a chief rabbi. Um, so Shalom, I think, did become known uh, pretty rapidly uh, around town. Um, he came here. Let's say let's start with this. His Zionism was uh, probably most closely could be described as that of Ahad Ha'am. It's kind of a cultural Zionism, less uh, interested in political Zionism, less interested in necessarily building a state. And when Sholem came here, he basically immediately gravitated to what we would today describe probably as the extreme left of uh, Yishuv politics. He became a very, very active member in what was called Brit Shalom, the peace, uh, the, the, the peace covenant group, which was uh, advocating for a binational entity for Jews and Arabs. Um, in, in there, many intellectuals were part of that. Many Hebrew University great leaders were part of that, including um, Magnus, the head of Hebrew University, including Shmuel Hugo Bergman, who was a great philosopher and close friend of Shalom, and head of the National Library at one point, the person who brought Shalom over from Europe for that job. Uh, and a philosophy professor later. Um, Buber was also involved, but Buber only made Aliyah in 1938. So there, Sholem beat him here by 15 years. So that's a really a different, a different story. Um, later on, especially after the Holocaust and the, first of all, Breach Sholem fell apart. It fell apart largely because there, as, as I would say today, there wasn't really a partner. And as it never had any, as far as I know, any Arab participants in it or activists. So it was kind of the Jews negotiating with themselves, so to speak, of what they're going to do with the with their partners who weren't there. So it didn't really... We're, we're good at that, negotiating with ourselves. We're, we're good at that. Yeah, so it didn't really lead anywhere, and it fell apart eventually. But after the uh, the War of Independence and the establishment of the state, and especially in light of the Holocaust, Shalom moved, I would say, much more to the center left, to the more moderate left, kind of the, and he became a big a kind of spokesman for Israeli statehood. And and he really, under after the Holocaust, understood that there really was no choice. The Jews need their own state. They need a, a safe refuge. And uh, and he became more of a, of a centrist, although he definitely stayed on the left. After the Six-Day War, he was one of the signatories of intellectuals immediately calling for the negotiation of peace and exchange for all the territories that had been captured during the Six-Day War. So he was was clearly on the left, but he became a much more of a of a kind of a of a Zionist left um, in a more traditional way. And in that context, he had his first big debate with Hannah Arendt, who had been a close friend, the sociologist, uh, had been a friend from Germany, because um, she became a kind of a poster. It's a little early to say post-Zionist, but an anti-Zionist. Um, when she was in New York, and he, they had some pretty strong polemics, which later they had a huge falling out over the Eichmann trial. That's a separate topic. Uh, his relationship with Agnon, which began in Germany, um, was very different. I don't 
know too much about Agnon's politics, but his relationship with Agnon was really much more of a of a shared literary interest in Hasidic literature and Kabbalah. He thought that Agnon was a brilliant writer. He translated some of Agnon into German while he was still a young man in Germany. And and he um they just became very, very close friends um for for decades. Um but I don't think that had so much to do with the political context. And it was a different circle. Shalom had a lot of social, cultural circles that he moved in and and there was the political one and Agnon was part of a different one. Um, and then there was sort of German intellectuals that he hung out with uh, and that sort of thing. Um, this is worth pointing out that, that in this context of this question, that Shalom today is a topic of a huge amount of research and interest, and not only in the context of his um, studies of Kabbalah, but in the context as well of him as being a political cultural figure. And in the last few years, numerous biographies of Shalom have come out, as well as one of his brother and a book about his family. And there's uh, endless articles about Shalom analyzing his politics, his view about Jewish culture, his theology. Though I don't know that he would have thought of himself as a theologian. Um, and he's become, you know, even today, I would say that for people on the politically more on the left, they like to look at him as one of their kind of uh, of uh, spiritual forefathers that they can sort of quote, bring him in on their side of the argument, let's say. So Shalom is a is a huge topic of discussion and of uh, and of research and in addition to the Kabbalah piece and a lot of it has to do with this uh, kind of social networking that he was so uh, involved in all the time that he was uh, <clears throat> was living in Israel. On the one hand, um, as you as you mentioned, um, Rabbi Leshem, Geshem Shalom was trained as a mathematician, and he was. German, let's call him a yekka, for lack of a better word, extremely organized. You brought this out in all his works. On the other hand, Kabbalah, Hasidism, especially Kabbalah, is a very creative process. How, how do you how do you look at that one person, and you know, how do they balance those those two sides of the equation? Well, well, you're right. He was certainly extraordinarily organized. You see that in the way that he wrote notes. We have lots of his notebooks in the archives, and, we, and he wrote tremendous amount of notes in his books, which is one of the reasons that people like to come to the library, because they can read his notes, uh, which are very interesting and often very technical, very philological, very bibliographical. He'll write a note in the beginning of a book and describe all the previous editions and which one was based on which other one and, and how this one is different than the previous edition and, and all those sorts of things. Um, he was a systematizer. And he wrote about Kabbalah very systematically, as I said before, kind of like a philosophical, in a philosophical bent. And I mentioned before that some of his students, uh, part of their sort of rebellion of the next generation of Kabbalah scholarship was to focus on experiential aspects of Kabbalah and the lifestyle of the Kabbalists, um, as well as their doctrines. Another aspect of that same Rebellion, scholarly rebellion, so to speak, or scholarly revision, um, is the critique of Sholom and some of his students, such as uh, Isaiah Tishbe, for example, who wrote a book called Mishnat HaZohar, a two-volume book about sort of the describing the Zohar about, based on topics and choosing key texts and analyzing its, so to speak, philosophy. And the next generation said kind of what you said in your question, 
that uh, Kabbalah is a little messier than that. It's not necessarily a, necessarily a philosophy. Uh, one of my teachers, Yehuda Liebes, who was a very close student of Sholem at the end of his life, uh, he wrote about the, the book Mishnat HaZohar of Tishbi, that uh, that's an oxymoron, the title, that the Zohar is not a Mishnah. It's not an organized philosophical treatise. It's much more of a of a kind of experiential, midrashic, almost dreamlike, um, almost prophetic style uh, discourses in a very disorganized way, one could say, in a very deep way, in a very beautiful way. It's much more like poetry than like prose, and certainly much more like poetry than like philosophy. But that's not true of all the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah of the Ari of Rav Yitzhak Lui, for example, is incredibly organized. It really is almost like a mathematical uh, puzzle in a lot of ways, or a mathematical chart. It needs to be charted out to be able to keep track of it uh, in many ways. But uh, in that sense, Shalom, you know, he was the first generation of scholarship that really devoted itself to Kabbalah, and he went at it with the tools that he had in his toolbox of Jewish philology and Jewish philosophy. Jewish philosophy by his time had been studied academically in great detail. Kabbalah had not. So in a sense, he took the tools from the Wissenschaft, from the Jewish uh, academic world, and applied the sort of the same methodology to Kabbalah. Later generations kind of broadened that out with, with, with new methodologies. The word Kabbalah itself denotes a receiving Right. I mean, you're receiving one generation passes on to the next generation. There's there's a whole Masoret, if, if, if that's the right word, a tradition that's passed on from generation to generation. Did Gershom Shalom study Kabbalah with Mekubalim? Did he have that kind of expertise? Could he walk into Shar Shemaim or Beit El in the old city and sit with what we can what? some would say, are authentic Kabbalists that have a tradition of Kabbalah. Can he, you know, learn with the best of them? That's an interesting question, which is very speculative. Um, Sholem writes in one of his books that uh, a friend of his went to the Beit El Yeshiva and asked, and he was not a Kabbalist, he was an outsider, and asked to be admitted, and they were told him, We'll let you hear if you promise not to ask any questions. And he refused. And most people assume that Shalom talking about himself. Um, I can say that when he met with Rav Cook, Rav Cook did say after the meeting that, yeah, this young guy really does know a lot about Kabbalah. He was not a Kabbalist. He would not describe himself as a Kabbalist. He would describe himself as a historian of Kabbalah. Um, despite that possible attempt to study in Beit El, um, Sholem has been criticized by not working hard enough to make connections with living Kabbalists. Uh, what my teacher, Professor Moshe Dell, once said uh, to me, um, an anthropologist will go live in the jungle on the other side of the world under horrific conditions for years, not knowing the language in order to study the natives. And Sholem lived about two blocks away from the natives, and he spoke the same language as them. And he didn't make that much of an effort to, to connect with them. Although there are exceptions to that. We know that Shalom for a while was a neighbor with Harava Nazir of David Cohen, the disciple of Rav Kook. 
And they did study Kabbalistic manuscripts together, especially of Rabbi Avram Abu Lafia. Uh, so they knew each other already in university in Switzerland, I believe, before they made Aliyah. Um, so Shalom, it seems like he didn't make a big enough attempt. Now, why not? Um, I think that he was ambivalent about Kabbalah in his own time. I think that he, and it, it may have to do somewhat with his religious ambivalence. As he did not, let's say something about that. He he was unhappy when people referred to him as being a chiloni, being a secular. He said, I always believe, I've always believed in God, therefore I'm not secular. On the other hand, he certainly wasn't orthodox. And he uh, he was kind of traditional in the sense that he, he, he kept the things that he enjoyed. Someone told me that he made Kiddush Friday night with great fervor. So on the other hand, he said in a, in an interview once that he doesn't, the, the Judaism of pots and pans doesn't appeal to him, presumably meaning kashrut. So he did what he, you know, things that he identified with basically. Um, but so I think he felt a little bit uncomfortable about current Kabbalists. He, he really talks about two Kabbalists that he felt were great mystics in his time, one being Rav Cook, who he mentions in, in several places. And paradoxically, the other one being Rav Arla Roth, who founded what later became known as Toldos Aron, uh, extremely, extremely, uh, extremely uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Mea Sharim uh, Hasidism, Hungarian Hasidism in Jerusalem. And he viewed those people as the two great Jewish mystics of his time. Uh, interest, it's a very interesting uh, combination. But uh, one gets the sense <clears throat> that he wasn't sure about the future of Kabbalah. He wasn't sure if it really was going to continue. I think he saw Hasidism in his time as being on the way out, especially right after the Holocaust. And he also recognized that a lot of the Hasidic communities had become not particularly Kabbalistic, which is uh, something that the some number of Hasidic rabbis also wrote about. It's not like only he uh, had that insight. So I think that he uh, was left a little bit ambivalent about the future of Kabbalah, Although at the end of his major trends in Jewish mysticism, the, the last chapter being about Hasidism, which he calls the latest phase, he ends, and it was they were oral lectures that he gave in New York. So his last statement was something like, okay, that's this is the Kabbalah up till now, and what will the future be? Well, that's uh, for prophets, not for professors to decide, but no one knows it could break out in you or in me or something like that, implying that, yeah, maybe there'll be another big outburst of Kabbalistic mystical activity in the future. On the other hand, not clear that he really thought that was happening. He maybe thought it was really winding down. And he was describing something which was uh, sort of re reaching its its uh, last legs. Not clear. And so uh, that's as much as I can say about your, to speculate about uh, your question. Fair enough. Um, what projects are currently being developed at the Geshem Shalom Collection at the library? What is your favorite work or part of the collection? And, and what is it that, that Rabbi Leshen, Dr. Leshen, what, what do you do in, as part of, as director of, of this great collection? Okay. So our biggest project right now which will not sound very romantic or very uh, content-oriented, is that we are moving to a new building. The National Library, after it's being in its current location for the last uh, 63 years, is moving in a, in a few weeks to a, an unbelievably beautiful and incredibly uh, modern 
facility that's right near the Knesset and the Israel Museum. And, uh, and so I have to be in charge of moving 35,000 books, including 4,000 rare books, and making sure they get from the right place on the shelves in the current building to the right place on the shelves in the new building. So that is really right now, by far, the overwhelming project that we're involved in. Uh, other, so the, everything else is kind of on hold. But other big projects that we've done over the years, and I've been there for 12 years, the projects that we've done that are that are significant and that I think we'll pick up again once we get resettled. First of all, huge amount of digitation. We've digitized about three quarters of our four, over 4,000 rare books, and that needs to continue. We digitized, uh, Sholem kept a card file of a, a kind of a Zohar Aramaic dictionary in 7,000 file cards most of them on both sides. You're dealing with almost 14,000 images, which we also digitized. That was a huge project um, that was very important. We're constantly expanding the collection because it is a research library. So we can't only have the books that Shalom owned when he died 40 years ago. So we're constantly developing and expanding the collection. Um, We do a lot of educational or research work. We've, we sponsored a number of conferences. We had a conference for Shalom's 30th Yort site and last year for his 40th Yort site. We've had a number of conferences having to do with Shalom and other figures that he was close to. Uh, Shalom and some of his students, Shalom and, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, the, the uh, Argentinian author uh, Borges, who Shalom met with, there's sort of mutual admiration. So we, we have a lot of uh, kind of educational, cultural research activities that we're involved in as well. So I would say those are the main things that are happening right now. But like I said, everything's kind of on hold now while we actually physically move this massive collection. And that involves also a lot of work with the adjusting the catalog and, and things like that. I have a lot of favorite uh favorite books. I'll mention two for the moment. Um, one is the book Ema Banim Smecha by Rabbi Yisachar Teichtol, who was a Slovakian Rosh Hashiva who was killed in the Holocaust. And we have a, a copy of the book there. And he was in, he wrote this book while he was in hiding in Budapest, in the Budapest ghetto. And my father, Zichonali Vrucha, was also in the Budapest ghetto. So I've, I've always felt a connection with this book. And at home, I have a, a, a newer edition. And only when I got to the Shalom Library did I see the original edition that was published in Budapest in 1943, which is astounding uh, in its own right. And any book that was published in Europe during the Holocaust is automatically considered a rare book. Um, but what's even more amazing about this copy, in addition to the fact simply that it is the first edition from Budapest in 1943, is that it has an autographed dedication from Rav, Rabbi Teichtel to a friend of his, to another Rav, um, where he says, I'm giving you this book as you're preparing to go on Aliyah to our beloved land. And, uh, and he blesses him with his Aliyah. And he says, and, uh, and then he prays for Am Yisrael to be saved. And, uh, this book was, this dedication was written only a few weeks before, uh, Rav Teichtel was deported and murdered. And the book was dedicated to someone he calls a dear friend, uh, Rav Ephraim Ebert. And we couldn't find out anything about who this person was. We looked in the Yad Vashem records and everywhere we could, we found no information about this person. And we eventually published at one point uh, a small article. We published, I also, we do a lot of posts 
and articles about objects in the collection. There's just so many interesting things. We wrote one about this book and showed the dedication. And we just wrote at the end, but we don't know anything about this, the rabbi who received the book. Two days later, I got a phone call. Hi, I'm Rabbi Ebert's great-granddaughter. Can I come see you? And of course, I was thrilled. And this woman came in. She was in B'nai Brak. Rabbi Eberts did not make Aliyah in 1943 when the book was dedicated to him. He made Aliyah in 1946 after the Shoah. And apparently he didn't bring the book with him, or he may never have received the book because we know from another notation in the book that it was in, it was in Budapest until 1970 when it was given to a student of Shalom, Rivka Schatz, who then gave it to him. So that's, that book is a really special one for me. Another example, I mean, there's obviously classic things, the first edition of the Zohar and the first edition of the Sefer Yitzira and all these things, of course, those are obvious. Um, we also have, uh, we have about a thousand books with dedications from people that gave them to Shalom, including some of them are, some of them are boring, frankly, but some of them are very interesting historically. Uh, quite a number from Buber, uh, with whom Shalom had a complex and sometimes a con- uh, uh, sometimes uh, kind of um, adversarial relationship with over the years about Zionist politics and about scholarship. And so some of the some of that's hinted at in some of these dedications as well, for example. But another book that's really one of my favorites is a Hasidic book, uh, Tzidkat Tzadik by Rabbi Tzadok Cohen of Lublin, who died in 1900. And uh, Rav Tzadok's books were all published by his Hasidim after he died. So the first edition of Tzidkat Atzadi came out in 1902 in Lublin. And uh, if you open it and flip through it, you'll notice uh, right away that it's been censored. It's what we call internal censorship. Internal censorship. The students of Rav Tzadok took out about 10 paragraphs that they felt were too controversial. Either people would misunderstand them or maybe it wouldn't look, reflect well on their Rebbe, etc. And they just left them out. And so they're numbered, the, the paragraphs are numbered, and so they'll say number 52, and then it'll say number 53 missing, number 54. So, uh, but starting in the 1960s, these pieces started to be published in, in, in newer editions of Rav Tzadok. So where did they get these extra pieces from? So we have a copy of, of the first edition that in the back of it has in it uh, four pages of handwritten manuscript by a student of Rav Tzadok, who copied for himself from Rav Tzadok's own manuscript that didn't survive the Holocaust, and he put it in the back of his book. And similarly, Rav Eliyahu Kitov, the famous Israeli author, his father was also a student of Rav Tzadok, and his father also wrote in the margins of his edition the same thing. And based on these two editions, the one that we have and one that's owned in the uh, Rav Eliyahu Kitov's family, uh, the various extra pieces were published, mostly by the family and some an additional piece from our edition. So that's a really cool uh, book to be able to look up and see, you know, what was taken out uh, by the students. If in conclusion, if, if you can just summarize briefly, Kershom Shalom's greatest legacy. I think that um, I would I would say two main things. Um, one is that he really is the person who created, and this was pointed out by Buber, he kind of single-handedly created a new academic discipline of Jewish mysticism. By the way, she just pointed out Jewish mysticism, I think, is a term that he made up. And not all the scholars like it for various reasons, but we'll leave that for another discussion. Um, there were academics before Shalom who wrote about Kabbalah, but it was, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. It wasn't their main thing. He was the first person who set out to 
create a new topic of study and brought it into uh, with him into Hebrew University when the university was just beginning in 1925, which was not uh, to be taken for granted that they even agreed to having such a such a field of studies. And it and it shows a lot about his reputation as a brilliant young scholar that they agreed to kind of take this gamble and open up a Kabbalah depart, a section within the Jewish uh, studies department. So that that's first of all. And he's, of course, raised, he had many, many students, and those students have had many students. And now, I think all over the world, certainly in, in Israel and all the universities in Israel and in all the good universities in the States and Europe, where you have Jewish studies, it's very, very common to have someone who's also teaching some aspect of Kabbalah. It's really become a very, very mainstream uh, part of Jewish studies, and, and you can't imagine it today being otherwise. So that's sort of in the broadest sense. Moving in more deeply, I would say something that I alluded to earlier in our discussion, which was his mapping out of all of the Kabbalistic material as much as he could. The fact that he wrote bibliographic works such as Bibli Bib uh, um, Bibliographia Kabbalistica, or his description of all the Kabbalistic manuscripts, um, and the way he treated um, many, many Kabbalistic authors and manuscripts and that were not very well known before his time. People didn't know who'd written certain books. And he really set out and created, a, put, out, put out there the big picture of what's out there. And then he didn't get to study it all. He didn't have time in one lifetime to study everything in depth. Um, but he let us know what's there. And as Yosef Dan wrote, uh, even the creation of his library itself was already, in a sense, is a mapping out of the Kabbalistic world. He arranged his library according to the chronological development of Kabbalah, first the primary sources, then the research material. And if you go, come to the library, you come to the Shalom collection and walk around, you basically can visually see in front of you what are all the different kinds of Kabbalah, periods of Kabbalah, places of Kabbalah, and then you can begin to analyze, well, what's been studied and what still hasn't been studied? What you know, what's left for me to work on? And there's plenty. Um, so I think that he did a huge service to future scholarship by creating the, the library that enables the research and including his notes and his books, many of which were clearly written not for himself, but for, for posterity. Uh, and then on top of all of that, so then you have his content studies about the Zohar, about the Ari, about Hasidism, and the a huge amount that he wrote about Shabtai Tzvi and the Sabatian movement and Jewish Messianism, which some people would say uh, then pushed the direction of Kabbalah studies too much in that, in sort of the antinomian uh, radical direction. And it's been overstudied or it's been taken, uh, it's been given more prominence than it deserves. So that's a separate uh, big discussion. But he also, that's he put that on the table also and tried to do it objectively. In other words, if in, until his time, basically, Shabtai Tzvi had either been written about by his followers who deified him or his detractors who hated him absolutely and thought he was the you know, absolute incarnation of evil that had you know, almost destroyed Judaism. Shalom said, I'm, said, I'm going to read all the documents about Shabtai Tzvi and try to tell the story of what really happened and be, not be judgmental about it. Whether he succeeded in being objective or not, that's, you know, we could debate, but that was also a huge, uh, a huge uh, contribution to scholarship um, as well. This has been absolutely fascinating. It's just, uh, we always say, it's just the tip of the iceberg here. There's, there's so much here and, and urge 
all our viewers and listeners um, to go online and when visiting Jerusalem in not right now, but in what another month is that fair enough? We're, well, we're still open now. We're open till the end of okay. August. We're closing okay. the beginning of September, and we're reopening apparently towards the end of October, a week okay. or so after the end of this Sukkot holiday. Okay, so we'll about a six-week closure. But uh, so, if you're in as Jerusalem now, come now quickly, and if not, after Sukkot. Okay. Dr. Um, Rabbi Dr. Leshem, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care.